0: You're listening to Moneymakers, talking with leading professional investors about current trends and opportunities in the financial markets. Yes, hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan Davis. And today on the Moneymakers podcast, we're going to be talking about every investor's favorite subject, Warren Buffett, the world's most famous investor, the sage of Omaha, as he's sometimes known, and a man who's starting out with very little money has become one of the richest men on the planet, largely through his stock market investment expertise. To talk about Buffett, I'm delighted to be joined today by Glenn Arnold, who, uh, as many of you will know, as an author of standard textbook about investing, a former professor of investment at a university, but now a full-time investor himself. He's just completed this book uh, called Warren Buffett's Deals, uh, the first volume of what's going to be a multi-volume series which goes back and look at Warren Buffett's career since the beginning, back in the uh, late 1940s and early 1950s when he first set up as an investment partnership. What he's done in this book is to go look at deal by deal at many of the investments that uh, Buffett made, looking at the explanations he gave for why he did it, how it fit into his general investment philosophy, and what lessons Buffett himself drew from those experiences, Not all of them were huge successes. He also is quite candid about those that have worked and those that did not work. Glenn, I'd like to start by asking uh, how you came to write uh, your book, Buffett Steals. Uh, What was the impetus to do that?
1: (laughs) It's entirely by accident, actually. Um, I I left university uh, in order to uh, concentrate on investing uh, about four years ago. And uh, I analysed companies. And in order to... um, uh, hone my ideas and make sure that I'm, I'm being entirely rational. I wrote everything down, wrote down my analysis, and then I thought, well, what, might as well put it on a website. So I put it on a free website that my wife designed, threw it on there, and then I got contacted by an investment web, uh, website uh, called ADVFN, and they wanted to put it on there. Anyway, in between writing about companies that I'm investing in, why the, the rationale for investing in UK companies, I had to think of other things uh, to entertain my uh, subscribers and also to educate myself. So I thought, wow, it would be quite interesting to do uh, a series of case studies on Warren Buffett, nice little short uh, case studies explaining his rationale for each of his investments as he went through his career. Uh, So I just started doing that, and then I got contacted by Harriman House, and they said, Glenn, have you got anything that we could put into a book? And I said, well, is this series I've been doing for... Uh, my newsletter subscribers and that could make an interesting book so pff, here we are now and it's been published as a book. a the 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 ones that I've done until now, it's only until when he's 48 and that makes the first book and I've now got a contract for three other books to uh, cover the rest of his life
0: Right, well the great thing about Warren Buffett uh, or one of the many great things about him is that uh, as you say he has very faithfully chronicled his own uh, journey if you like uh, through as an investor starting with the very small scale when he started uh, investing other people's money, a small group of other people's money from his, from his bedroom, um, yeah. all the way through to uh, the present day, where obviously Berkshire Hathaway, his company, has become a, a multi, uh, a 300 billion or more market capitalization company. Um, yeah. But there's a, there's a really rich source of material there. And I think what you've done here is you've gone back to the very early days when he was, if you like, as close to um, uh, having the same experience as uh, ordinary investors today would have, uh, rather than what he's doing today, which is on a completely different scale.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we can learn so much from what he learned as he went along. You know, he wasn't always perfect about this at all, he still isn't today. But there were, there were so many errors in the early days. And and that is very heartening for the rest of us who, who, who still make errors, you know. Um, we can learn as he learned, so that there's principle set down, um, and we can see the evolution of his ideas as well, uh, as he got the knocks, as he got his successes as well.
0: And also as he passed through different phases in the market, I think the you know the fifties and the sixties when he started out were very different from the seventies, and then we had and then eighties, nineties, and so on. Um, and of course, that's one of the interesting aspects is how he dealt with uh, his own uh, investment activity during periods of you know strong markets and weak markets. There were some differences there
1: yeah indeed i mean he he was very fortunate in a way that he started investing in well late 40s but um, particularly in the 1950s because that was a period of great boom in terms of the stock market Um, so that was great and then of course he was very prescient in terms of getting out of the market when he thought things were just going a bit insane Uh, so he, he liquidated portfolios at that point but also he he changed, over time, he changed philosophy as well to some degree. Now, he didn't abandon the old philosophy. It, it's still a valid way of looking at things. So the original philosophy was based on Benjamin Graham's way of thinking, with a particular emphasis on safety, a particular emphasis on the balance sheet. Uh, but come the mid-1960s, he's evolving much more into looking for economic franchises, often with companies that don't have much of a strong balance sheet. So that is an interesting uh, pattern that you see over time. But he, w- he, he even today, he would say that the rest of us, the smaller investors, we can still very much use the Benjamin Graham principles for picking shares. It's just that when he's dealing in billions, it just doesn't make a lot of sense because most of that type of investing is associated with smaller companies.
0: Yes, indeed. He started his, in his career, we should remind people, by essentially looking for uh, uh, for small companies that were, for for some good reason or another, trading well below their um, their intrinsic value, or in specifically their uh, you know their net assets, um, would you like to say though the the kind of three um, the three step process that you describe, which he kind of learned from Ben Graham, uh, as to how to approach the business of picking stocks, because I think they're still very relevant today. Uh, you mentioned that at the start of your book, the um, the need for analysis, safety, and uh, and uh, realistic expectations but perhaps you could just explain those a little bit further
1: yeah sure um, his mentor Benjamin Graham was a chap who was running a fund in the 1920s and even though he was uh, a very rational investor even he got carried away with the enthusiasm for growth stocks or glamour stocks if you like in the late 1920s anyway he, uh, a lot of money was lost on the fund And so in the 1930s, he sat down and thought, well, what, you know, what's happened here? And in particular, what's the difference between being an investor and being a speculator? And he thought, well, is it because of the type of instrument that you buy? So if you buy a government bond, that makes you an investor. If you're into derivatives, that makes you a speculator. And he said, no, no, it's not that, because sometimes each of those can be investments and each of those can be speculative." Not that. What about the length of time that you intend to hold an instrument? Uh, if you're doing rapid turnover, you're sort of day trading, does that make you a speculator or an investor? Or if you know, you're holding things for just a couple of months uh, and expecting to sell, does that make you a speculator or an investor? He said, no, 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 that's not the essence of it. And he said, what the essence are these three things. Firstly, you must understand what you are putting your money into so you must thoroughly understand a business you must think in terms of when you are passing with your money to buy shares in the stock market you are buying a share of a business just as if you were buying a corner shop or buying a share in a corner shop you'd be fascinated by all sorts of things to do with that business you're fascinated by its accounts how much profit does it make what assets does it has what what liabilities does it does it have um, you'd be fascinated by its strategic position. Uh, does it have major competitors? Is there some sort of barrier to entry into that market? You'd be fascinated by the, the quality of the managers. Are they good, honest people, um, unlikely to uh, run away with shareholders' money? Um, are they competent people? So all of these things you should be doing as an investor in the stock market. So, so that's the first thing thorough understanding of what you're investing in the second is um, not to expect to greatly outperform don't stretch yourself in order to achieve fantastic returns because if you if you do that you're going to take on too much risk and you end up probably losing your money Um, and the third thing is margin of safety Make sure that when you buy into a company, uh, you do so, so that even if you've you've got something slightly wrong in your analysis, um, or things go worse in the economy, uh, or something hits that industry, you've got some sort of buffer there to save you. It's rather like engineers building bridges. They do not build them to withstand normal wins only they think about the most extreme possibilities so on a, on a share if you value a share at somewhere between uh let's say 10 pounds and 15 pounds these things are never entirely precise um so you would then not buy it unless you could get it for less than eight pounds that that's margin of safety principle
0: yeah and this, of course, is where many people do go wrong when they come into the market. They often come in during a period of of uh, when the market is doing very well. And you see something like, let's just take a current example, um, you know, something like Fever Tree, which has come to the market and has shot up uh, a multiple of, of times since it was uh, came to the market. Um, and a lot of people are buying it because it has done so well and because they can think they understand what the... Um, what the market for mixer drinks is, but uh, I wonder how many of those people have actually looked at the balance sheet or indeed looked realistically at what the what would happen as soon as that um, their current growth rate uh, uh, deteriorates. I'm not saying whether that's a good or a bad buy at the moment, but I'm just saying that's the kind of thing that draws people in, uh, but that's not necessarily investing. That is, uh, that is speculating, unless you've actually done that kind of research uh, that you were talking about.
1: Yeah, the margin of safety I'd be looking for on that one would be a qualitative, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, a qualitative margin of safety. And that is I'd be looking at the potential for entry into that market. You're not going to find that on a balance sheet or a profit and loss account from Fevertree. You're going to have to think about and understand the likelihood of competitors stepping into their market and taking their market from them. Fevertree Tree fantastic, they've, they've done very well in their marketing, but is there somebody else waiting out in the wings there, ready to, to do much the same and take over from them? I, I don't know, but it, that's where I would look.
0: Yes, I think most people there would also, uh, well, I know talking to some of the investors who, who own those shares, they all, all think that at some point a larger company will come in just to snap them up and uh, give them an exit uh, before that uh, uh, competitor appears. But that's mm. we, we need to wait and see whether that's a realistic possibility. Yeah.
1: I can't help thinking it's about putting value on hope, not on the facts. You see, Benjamin Graham said you must always look at the facts and pay most attention to the facts. And the facts are what is actually produced so far in terms of profits and what is actually got in terms of net assets.
0: Well, one of the quotes you you put in from Graham is analysis is uh, I'm quoting here is analysis is concerned primarily with value. Values which are supported by the facts and not those which depend largely on expectations mm-hmm. And yet of course uh, many people who come into shares again They they do rely on expectations because they basically look at brokers uh, forecasts of earnings And that's about as far as they look and if they if they think the the earnings are going to grow uh, Then that's often many people a sufficient um, You know criteria for getting involved, um, but that of course is uh, fraught with danger
1: Absolutely um and for me i i don't look at brokers forecasts, to be honest um because i find that i used to train people in the city by the way in this sort of thing and i find that most people there are quantitative so they'll they'll take a history of a company in terms of its profits and its, its other aspects of its accounts and they'll project forward fine But that's not what uh, the biggest part of investing is. The biggest part of investing is not quantitative, it's qualitative. So you want to know what what led to those numbers in the past in terms of whether it's got an economic franchise, in terms of whether it's got things like customer captivity or barriers to entry, and in terms of whether it's got a very strong management team. Um, And those things you will not find on on the balance sheet or the profit and loss account. Indeed. And my, my job when I taught in the city was to bring people more towards this side because they they are trained and they get qualifications, CFA and all that sort of thing, um, based on their quality, uh, quantitative analysis rather than their uh, qualitative analysis.
0: Yeah. So your point is that, uh, and indeed Buffett's point, is that you can only take uh, quantitative analysis so far um, and of course, related yeah. to that is the fact that another another feature of uh, his early experience was, you know, coming to fully understand that you um, you can't trust uh, what Ben Graham called Mr. Market to value shares correctly uh, uh, all the time, or indeed uh, a lot of the time. Perhaps you could explain a little bit more about Mr. Market and and uh, what he's, what role he plays in uh, in yeah. Buffett's thinking.
1: Brilliant metaphor that uh, Benjamin Graham created. And um, you've got to imagine that you're in business with a man called Mr. Market. And uh, you own 50% of the company. He owns 50% of the company. And some days, Mr. Market comes to work, and he's full of enthusiasm. Everything's going great. So he's willing to offer you a very high price for your half of the business. Other days, he comes in. He's a bit of a manic depressive. He's just really fed up. Things aren't looking good. And he wants to sell his half of the business at a very low price. He wants to get out and go and do something else. Now, the question for you as an investor is, do you um, do your valuation on the basis of Mr. Market? Or do you completely ignore Mr. Market except when he's offering you a bargain? So you independently do your own analysis of what a share is worth And then when Mr. Market is in a depressed state, buy from him. And when he's in an exuberant state, sell to him. But never take your value from Mr. Market. Price is what you pay, value is what you get. They're two different things. So don't take it from the market.
0: So this leads one into the idea that... um, to be a successful value investor, in, in the Ben Graham model at least, uh, that Buffett started out with, um, to be a value investor, you have to be uh, – it's, it's, not, it's not quite as simple as saying you have to be a contrarian investor. But it does mean that if you're going to get a very good bargain, there have to be quite a lot of people out there who have reasons not to share your, your view about a, about a company. Uh, otherwise, it, the share price would not be as depressed as it is.
1: Yes, I, I guess it's kind of a, an egotistical stance in that you're saying, well, my analysis is better than everybody else's analysis, or at least most people's analysis. The, the weight of analysis uh, is, is different to mine. And, and most of the time you would say, well, fair enough. I'll let the market decide that, that looks about right. Um, I'm not going to buy into that. So you have to search and search. You have to do lots of analysis. I've been, I've been doing one this morning, for example on a company that, after hours of analysis, I've decided not to buy. It's just a little bit too pricey for me, given my valuation. So, yeah, there's there's that. But you've got to develop that confidence, and developing that confidence requires some knowledge. I mean, it comes with experience, but also you've got to have some ability in understanding accounts, in understanding finance, in understanding uh, corporate strategy understanding people go and meet the people go and meet the competitors go and try the product all of these things come into it and if you are doing those things you can quite often beat the guys in the city the guys in the city are not going out and trying the product they're not going to some regional town they're stuck in london so you you can have the edge that they're not always specialists so if you've got some medical knowledge or got some engineering knowledge and you actually go and meet the managers you get walk around the plant quite often uh, at AGMs I, I've been invited to walk around uh, factories and so on and you get to know the people you get to understand the business so much better that way than you would just by analy- analyzing a few numbers in London another so you can you can if you like develop a superior knowledge to most other people but it's important that you you feel that degree of confidence; otherwise, you're not investing.
0: Well, one one consequence, of course, is that you're likely, therefore, to end up with quite a narrow range, of, uh, quite a finite number, and quite a narrow range of uh, investments in your portfolio. Because, uh, however brilliant you are as an individual, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to uh, uh, fully understand uh, businesses of a quite different nature. You know, whether they're biotech at one extreme or or uh, widget makers at the other. So uh, so therefore, Buffett is, I think, an example of a, of a, of a, a sort of, if you like, a, a high conviction investor. But that's really because he recognizes his own limitations rather than because that's automatically the best way to proceed.
1: Yeah, there's two aspects there. The first one is it's a myth that you need to invest in more than about 10 securities in order to have uh, proper diversification. In, in the city, they talk about having something like 40 or more. Now, my feeling is that is ridiculous. Uh, what we've got is a diminishing marginal attractiveness curve. All right, sounds a very... What, if, if you put all the companies that you're interested in in order, with number one at the top is, is, is the one that you are really convinced about. It's absolutely fantastic. Number two, it, it, it's, it's almost as good as number one, but not quite. And you go down and down and down the list. Why on earth would you be buying number 40, when you can concentrate your money in the top 10. And the top 10 gives you the diversification you require. I, I write um, a university textbook, the best-selling university textbook on corporate finance. So I have chapters in there about uh, efficient market theory and all that sort of thing. You do not need fantastic diversification beyond about 10 securities. It, it doesn't help you very much in terms of reducing your standard deviation is, right. is the way in which we measure it, okay? So that's that's the first thing. The other thing is that, yes, you will not find many companies that you can invest in. You will not invest much in a year. I only invest about, I would say, about eight times a year, something like that. Um, Warren Buffett says that on his desk he's got three metaphorical piles, right? So he looks at a company, and if he doesn't like it, he puts it on the no pile, the no pile is quite high. It's sort of halfway up to the ceiling. If he likes it, he puts it onto the yes pile. Now the yes pile is absolutely tiny. It's just a few sheets of paper on his desk. But the don't know pile, where he can't actually analyze it, is enormous. It goes right up to the ceiling and beyond. He has to do two piles. Okay? And what he's saying there is there are loads of industries that you will not understand in fact hardly anybody understands them Uh, a classic example here is warren buffett and bill gates are great friends and bill gates is on on the um board of directors of Berkshire hathaway but warren has never invested in microsoft reason because it's on the don't know pile he he can't see where it's going Um, so there are biotechnology. Can you tell me what's going to happen in the next five or 10 years? Uh, FinTech, I've got no idea what's going to happen. So it all goes on to the don't know pile. So I can quickly get rid of lots of companies from further consideration and allow me to concentrate my mind on the ones that are really, really interesting, that I could understand. I can understand quite simple businesses. And Warren always tells us, Try and understand simple businesses. You don't have to step over step over three-inch hurdles rather than try and step over six-foot hurdles.
0: Yes, Does that's, that help? Absolutely. When I, uh, I mean, I did a thesis about Buffett uh, twenty-five years ago, and at that stage, um, I was I was indeed uh, struck by the fact that he'd uh, he'd never ever invested in seven out of the ten main sectors on the New York Stock Exchange. He'd actually yeah. had concentrated on just three, because those are the ones he thought he understood. And um, so, so one
1: of the smartest men in the world, certainly in terms of investing, says, I don't understand it. Yeah. And he says, I don't understand it many times a day. Yeah. And therefore, I won't invest in it.
0: And that drives a lot of people mad, because they, they see things going up in the market, and they, they think, well, I have to be part of that, otherwise I'm not really doing a good job as an investor. But of course, that's a really dangerous path to go down. Okay, uh, yeah. I think the other aspect you just you have to train yourself not to worry about the fact that other people are making money out of other things that you can't mm. invest in yourself.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So each of your chapters in the in in this new book uh, Buffett's Deal looks at some of his early investments and explains why he did them, uh, whether they worked out, and not all of them did, as you said before. Um, mm-hmm. But should we just take take one that uh, you think is um, you know brings out uh, some experiences uh, that are that are really valuable? I mean, would you like to pick one from the from the sort of first half of the book that you ooh, think has particular you, messages, or would you like me to suggest um, one?
1: Ooh, you want a negative or a positive one? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I guess we should have a positive one. The negative ones are in a way more more valuable. But uh, let's think yeah. of a, a, a possible one. Um,
1: um, well, I suppose the Geico story. Uh, one that he uh, invested in when he was twenty years old.
0: Yep, straight up.
1: Um, he was uh, studying at Columbia University with uh, un- under Benjamin Graham, and uh, he noticed that Benjamin Graham's investment fund uh, was the majority shareholder in a company called Geico, which is, is short for Government Employees Insurance Company. Tiny little company at that time, and Warren Buffett on a on a Saturday. Sets out from New York to Washington on the train and knocks on the door. And the janitor opens the door. And Warren Buffett says, can I speak to somebody about insurance? I I want to understand this company. He said, well, it happens to be that Lorimer Davidson, who's the finance guy at Geico, was upstairs. And uh, Lorimer Davidson uh, welcomes this this 20-year-old Buffett, who looks about 16, and said, yeah, I'll, I'll answer some questions for a few minutes on, on insurance. Anyway, four hours later, Warren Buffett feels he had the best education on insurance ever. And he really understands this company. Now, the, the key things that he learned from that qualitative again, right? Uh, yes. OK, you've got to look at the quantitative. You've got to know whether it's making profits and so on. But here are the key things that he went for. Ge- Geico started out just offering insurance to government employees. Now, they're low risk. Uh, This is for car insurance. They're low risk. And also, it had that sort of captive market. It had that contact with those government employees. So there was a cheap distribution model, uh, particularly because it was telephone-based. And um, so it's a nice niche business. Everyone on Wall Street was completely ignoring it because it was considered too small. But it, it, within its niche, it had a fantastic franchise. It had those customers come back to it year after year. Um, so Buffett bought, uh, he had about uh, $15,000 $15, at that stage he'd managed to save. Um, so you can, you can see how he didn't come from a, a wealthy background. He, in his teenage years, he'd struggled to put together $15,000. He'd done all sorts of different things in order to make some money. Anyway, got, got up to $15,000. Put 10000 of it into Geico, and then sold a year later for a 50% profit. Um, now, he did sensible things with it. He kicked himself afterwards. He did sensible things with the money afterwards and put it into other interesting investments. Um, and he returned to that company in the 1970s when it had gone through a very bad time. And today, GEICO is, is a major, major insurance company, and Berkshire Hathaway's has pumped billions into it, and he's getting billions in return.
0: And one of the so that's of, one positive. Yeah, absolutely. One of the secrets of its success is that it, it, even back then it was doing direct selling rather than using brokers to... Uh, to uh, to, yeah, uh, which
1: is fun- unusual,
0: yeah. Yeah. So if we just come back to the present, obviously we're running a little bit of short time. It is a wonderful book. I can recommend it to anybody uh, who's interested. I mean, one of the, uh, I suppose one of the paradoxes about doing something like this is that you may, uh, you know, by, by, if you like, explaining how difficult it is to get the right amount of knowledge, experience, and temperament, which is particularly important, we haven't really talked about that, is your mm. temperament may not suit you to uh, to investing in this style. Um, People may come yeah. away from this uh, book thinking, well, actually, this is all too difficult for me and I'm not going to bother. Um, mm-hmm. But then, of course, that in itself could be a, a very valuable lesson, because even if you're not, if you decide you're not in a position to do it, you're, you're going to save yourself a lot of money by not doing it. And then mm-hmm. we end up with a paradox. that, Of course, Warren Buffett also um, has been on record several times as saying, if you don't have that knowledge, then, you know, you might as well pick an index fund and uh, uh, yeah. and yeah. sleep easy at night. So he
1: recommended did, that for his wife once once he dies. Yeah. Um, she shouldn't try and pick shares. You know, she should just go for an index fund, a cheap index fund.
0: So, so th- that's a kind of. Um, but obviously, you're hoping that there will be people who read this book who who some come away with the feeling that actually it's all too difficult for me, and I should do just that. And others will say, okay, I really understand. I've really got to apply myself in in a in a way uh, that perhaps I hadn't realised, and uh, make it a long term commitment because I think the other message you you bring out very rightly is that. You know, uh, if you follow if you follow Buffett's principles, you need to um, you need to stick with them for quite a long period of time.
1: Yes, you do. It's definitely not short-term investing. Quite often, if you buy into a, a value share, it'll take two or three years for Mr. Market to recognise the value, uh, for it to come out. So you've got to be very patient. Yeah. Oh. Um, and but don't despair, because don't well. First of all, don't put all your money. Uh, when you are very novice at this in, in shares. But you, you can develop that knowledge over time. If you're genuinely interested, you'll want to develop that knowledge, and you want to read accounts, and you'll want to go and visit the managers. And to make it simple on yourself, just analyze industries that you understand or analyze companies that you understand. And there's plenty of those. Uh, if, if you understand retailing, why don't you just concentrate on retailing? If you understand engineering, why don't you just concentrate on engineering? Just to start with, it's, what, it's, the, it's the concept of circle of competence. Don't, whatever you do, step outside of your circle of competence. Buffett says this all the time. Hence why he doesn't invest in high technology and so on. Uh, and we can do the same. And we can make, even if our circle of competence is quite small to start with, it's, it's a point at which we can start. And we can actually invest. But maybe you need money in other things initially and later on add more money to your portfolio.
0: And what has your experience been, Glenn? I mean, you've been, as you say, you gave up a career as an academic uh, Mm. in order to invest uh, your money um, sort of full time. Um, And Mm. what's your experience been? You've been doing that now for, I think, five years. Is that right? Around five years? It's
1: it's more like three and a half, four years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What's your experience been like uh, so far?
1: Okay, that's, I'm, I'm quite pleased, Ian. I've, I've, I've no regrets at all. Um, I've also been uh, running a, a property development company, but I've decided to kind of close that down and then concentrate uh, on investing. I was going to say 100% on investing, but I've ended up writing books as well. I said I'd never write books again, but I've ended up writing this one. <laughs> um, so um, I've got those, got those two activities going on. So, yes, I'm, I'm quite pleased. No regrets at all.
0: And in terms of where we are in the market cycle, obviously you mentioned before Buffett, you know, famously in the, in the end of the 60s, he sort of returned all the money, wound up his partnership, uh, returned all his investors money because he mm. thought it was, uh, it was getting too difficult. It was a very frothy market, as we know. Mm. Um, it was getting very difficult to find things that met his criteria. You're not obviously worried about that happening uh, to you or us at the moment.
1: I did a series of uh, newsletters about six months ago, which looked at crashes in the stock market, and I gathered a whole load of data, particularly on the American market and what's going on in China and places like that. Um, I looked at uh, books such as Kindleberger's Manias, Panics and Crashes. Anyway, my conclusions from all of that was that the American market is in a very dangerous position. The American market is on what we call a cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio of about 30. That means you take the earnings for the companies on the stock market over the last 10 years and average them. You don't just take last year's earnings. You take the average for the last 10 years and compare that with the current share prices. And the American market at a value of 30. It has never been this high except in two years. 1929 and 1999. Now, something happened shortly after those years. Yeah, indeed. It's worth, worth thinking about. The other thing that particularly concerned me was uh, debt levels. Um, debt levels uh, amongst corporations and amongst the general public households, particularly in America and in China. And a third sort of level is that Bubbles often burst when foreigners stop lending money to a country. Mm -hmm. And America has been on a big spending spree, bringing in money from outside. So I shorted the American market a few months ago. Having said that, I also analyzed the European markets and the British market. And I'm quite content. We're about an average level of cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, the CAPE. Yep. And that's fine. There's there's loads of academic work on this, by the way, if you want to look it up, um, on whether the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio is actually a useful measure, and it really is. Uh, Not for predicting exactly what's going to happen over the next six months or a year, but in terms of shaping the likely outturn over over a decade. So I'm not saying that the market's going to crash tomorrow, but I am saying that I'm going to continue putting... Uh, buying put options on the Dow Jones uh, every every six months for the next period until until a trigger comes along. I don't know what that trigger is going to be. There's all sorts of things that could trigger the crash, but I'm not terribly confident in America. So I'm kind of hedged because I've got plenty of British shares, um, but I've also got this these put options on America. So if if, if things do go awry, British shares will be hit. But I'll be okay because I've got this put option on the down.
0: Yeah. Okay, so the, you are. The answer to the question is that you are indeed concerned about uh, at least one one of the major markets in the world, the U.S. market, uh, because am. of the level of valuations have reached very very high levels. Chinese market. And and, yeah. and the Chinese. market. I'm very market.
1: worried about China. I think oh. I think one of the major triggers, uh, the trigger, could come from China.
0: Yeah. OK, well, that's that rather less than uh, optimistic note, but uh, realistic note, which is the, the, the theme that runs through all uh, Ben Graham and Warren Buffett's thinking is the need to be realistic about uh, what being a stock market investor involves. I'd like to thank you very much, Glenn, for, uh, for talking to me today. You have
1: been listening to a Moneymakers podcast in association with Share Radio. You can find us on leading channels such as SoundCloud and YouTube and on the Share Radio website. To find out more, visit www.money-makers.co.